Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little bit deeper into the public policy challenges facing the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Martin Pierce, And I'm Sharon Bessel. Thanks for joining us again. Today we are going to be taking a close look at a small country on the other side of the world that has had a huge impact. It's had a huge impact in terms of the way that it responded to the global financial crisis. It's had a huge impact in terms of the way it has thought about some of the big political and social issues uh, of, our, of our time. That country is Iceland, and talking to us about Iceland is Kristin Valla Ragnarsdottir, who is a professor of sustainability science at the University of Iceland, as well as a distinguished fellow at the Schumacher Institute in the United Kingdom. Martin, I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Valla. She's trained as a geologist, but her passion is sustainability, and she spent a long part of her career thinking very deeply about issues of economic sustainability, environmental sustainability and human well-being and she has some some really new and exciting ideas to 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 bring to these debates she's also been involved in politics in iceland she um, became politically active after the the economic collapse in 2008 and she's been a member of or she is a member of the pirate party so who wouldn't be excited about talking to a bona fide pirate? A bona fide pirate, indeed. You know, International Talk Like a Pirate Day is sometime in September. It's a shame we didn't have her around for this, but, uh, you know, I'm sure if she was here for International Pirate Day, I would make some embarrassing attempt to talk like a pirate. We could always bring her back in September. Yeah. <laughs> let's, try and, let's, let's try and avoid me talk, talking like a pirate if we possibly can. So um, before we hand over to Val and hear what she had to say, a quick reminder that we do want to get your feedback and thoughts about what we talk about on the pod. We are really interested in that. You can reach us on Twitter where we are Apps Policy Forum. Or you can find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. Of course, you can always check our website, policyforum.net, for all of the latest insights, analysis and debate on the public policy challenges facing the Asia Pacific region. Now let's hear what Vala had to say. Kristin Vala Ragnastotir, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Vala, I wanted to start today's discussion at a personal level, if I may. In the past, you've been involved with anti-establishment politics. You were a member of the Pirate Party in Iceland and you stood for an election, albeit unsuccessfully. Could you tell us a little bit about the Pirate Party of Iceland? What does the party believe in and what attracted you to their cause? After the economic collapse in 2008, uh, a left government was formulated in 2009 and some citizen parties were formulated that got uh, a few members of parliament. Uh, When the the government uh, 
collapsed in 2013, then some of the people from these citizen parties uh, came together to formulate the Pirate Party, which is an international organization. And in those elections in 2013, uh, three members of parliament were elected in, and then our prime minister was found out to have been in the Panama Papers, so there were new elections in 2016, uh, where 10 members of the Pirates got into parliament. And then we had another government collapse in 2016, and then there were new elections and seven members of the Pirates got in. So now we have seven members of the Pirate Party in Parliament. They very much stand for transparency and anti-corruption, and they have formulated close to 200 policies, which are all uh, formulated by the grassroots and available on the internet. And uh, the parliamentarians listen carefully to the grassroots. And for example, at the moment, uh, one of the members of parliament is going after the spending of parliamentarians uh, for travel, which has not been transparent. And we have found out that they are getting huge amounts of, of uh, funding for traveling within their own constituencies. And it's not clear that this is all for their parliamentarian work. And, and this very much irritates the, the, the powers to be. Um, in Parliament, they have come up with uh, various policies. For example, at the moment, they are pursuing a policy on um, basic universal income, um, which uh, we are hoping will, will be accepted. Um, there is a pirate uh, who leads the welfare committee and, and uh, is very much interested in, um, in changing the way we are, we are dealing with uh, people who are handicapped, who are, um, uh, who are in unemployed and, and so on. So I think the pirate, from my perspective, have been a very good and positive influence and, and they... Um, they dare to stand up when when things are uh, looking sort of yeah suspicious and on, <laughs> within on a, the government. On a personal level, what attracted yes. you to their cause? I actually remember the day I became a pirate, and that was when the left green uh, then minister in um, 2013, just when Parliament uh, was collapsing formulated a policy to get uh, funding for setting up a heavy industry in his constituency where the foreign industry coming in, which needed a high amount of energy uh, for its operations, got a lot of um, tax deductions, etc. Funding was put in to build roads and, and a harbour and, and so on. And and I thought, he's from the Green Party, and this is what he is promoting. So I thought, I can't vote for this party anymore. So I became a pirate. <laughs> and I've been working with them, uh, very much uh, uh, standing for parliament, although I have been f too far back on the list to be voted into parliament. But it has been a, a very interesting time for me because these are mostly young people. They're full of enthusiasm. They're full of ideas. They want a, a different future than what the government is, is, uh, seems to be aiming for. 
Um, so I, I feel very privileged to have had the opportunity to work with them. Bella, you mentioned the, the 200 or more policies that the, the Pirate Party has developed in Iceland. And as part of that, you, you made a reference to universal basic income. And that's an issue that we've discussed on the podcast in, in the past. I'd be keen to hear your thoughts about that. Um, there's certainly a, a very strong view in some quarters that this is a disincentive to work. But the, the experiments coming out of Finland or the evidence coming out of Finland is suggesting the opposite, that actually it opens up opportunities, it fosters entrepreneurialism. What are your thoughts about universal basic income? Well, the proposals of the pilot is that we look very carefully into the outcome of the experiments that are going on, like in Holland and in Finland and some states in the US. They have actually started this in India. So there are examples that we can learn from. And and if it becomes or or gives a positive outcome, then the pilot party is very much um, in for putting in universal basic income, which will then replace unemployment payments, payments to the, the handicapped and, and, and others which are not uh, payments to the elderly who do not have an adequate uh, pension system and so on. And now that we are talking about increased automation and all these jobs are going to be lost and so on, and we, those of us who are working, we are you know, not working seven or eight hours a day. Many of us are working much longer hours. So, so, so people are getting tired and irritable and don't have any time for their families and so on. So I think this is a great idea to, to give people the opportunity if they do not want to work full time, um, the opportunity to work perhaps part time and then have time for other pursuits, have time for... Uh, your children or for your gardening or or for your meditation or whatever you know uh, strikes you that you would like to do um, to to sort of further your personal development and so I'm all for it. So the kind of model that is being considered by the Pirate Party in Iceland would see the sort of rolling back of certain elements of the social welfare system is that yes it would be to integrate it with the social welfare system um, and, and the proposal that has been put forward in Parliament is, is, uh, it was done by a woman called Haltora Mogensen, and she is now the, the chairman of the Welfare Committee of Parliament. So, Vala, you've, you've told us a little bit about the, the turbulent politics that um, Iceland experienced after the global financial crisis, and we know that the, the crisis was particularly devastating for Iceland. Standing on the outside, it looks as though Iceland has made a fairly miraculous recovery, um, despite the turbulence of politics and you know the issues that you raise about you know environmental and development issues. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about how Iceland managed to recover, or whether indeed it has recovered in the way we assume it has when we're we're standing a long way away? Well. What was done by the new left-wing government that came in in 2009 was to uh, make a a new uh, position for a special investigator to actually investigate financial fraud. Uh, We also got the IMF or the International Monetary Fund very much uh, to come to Iceland and breathe down our neck. So there how the government could operate was, was, was very much limited by that. The economy in Iceland has 
recovered now, but it's primarily because of tourism. Well, I'll go into that in a, in a minute. Um, when the economy collapsed, the currency completely collapsed. It was completely worthless. And it's not publicly known, but without the Norwegian politicians and Norwegian National Bank, we would still not be able to exchange our krona. So uh, Norway stepped in straight away and said, we will make sure that, you know, imports of food, etc., will be paid for, you know, Norway will, will guarantee all payments and so on. The presi- uh, special prosecutor has, with his staff, and the office was big, it had 70 or 80 people. We got the assistant of Eva Jolie, who had been investigating financial corruption, both in France and in Norway. Uh, because it's difficult to, to recognize these white-collar criminals. You need, she knew exactly how they operated, and, and that was very helpful. Now, almost 30 banksters have gone to prison. Uh, some have finished their sentences, others uh, are in prison or are waiting for space <laughs> to go to prison. <laughs> but what they had managed to do, many of them, was to hide money in uh, tax havens. And now this money is coming back to Iceland (laughs) through the back door uh, and taking part in all sorts of investments and actually get um, a discount of of the Icelandic krona through the National Bank, which is what a lot of people are very um, unhappy about. Uh, Many people lost their homes. Uh, Thousands of people emigrated, uh, mostly to Norway and Denmark. But what the initial government, of the lefting government in 2009 did was to start an advertising campaign for tourism, and which has now been incredibly um, successful. And Iceland seems to be on the agenda of, of, of people much more than before. You know, even China has uh, discovered Iceland. <laughs> so last year we had two and a half million tourists, and we are a country of 330. 20,000 people. So that's a huge influx of, of tourists. We, we had something like four or 500,000, you know, be, before this big advertisement started. And the infrastructure isn't really there to support this. So our roads are crumbling, you know, the, the setup for toilets, etc., by the most popular places um, is, is is behind and so on. So the only reason why we we can boost uh, and and be proud of economic growth is because of the tourism. The global financial crisis seemed to be the catalyst for the rise of a lot of anti-establishment politics around the world. I mean, it's not just the Pirate Party in Iceland, but I'm also thinking of uh, the uh, Occupy movement. Um, And on the right side of politics, it could be argued that a lot of the anti-establishment anger we saw in the rise of Donald Trump was fueled by economic pain. Do you think these types of anti-establishment sentiments point towards a sort of wider dissatisfaction with the status quo around the world, with our political leaders and with how the global economy works? Yes, I think a lot of people have have realised that the financial system is not working for the middleman. We now have um, globally, I think it's six individuals that own as much wealth as half of the poorer part of the uh, population on earth. 
So, and it was a few hundred people who owned that much uh, a few years ago, and this is put together by Oxfam uh, every year. And then um, this year it's six people. So with the huge amount of debt that people have accumulated, um, the, the rich people, you know, there are like Amazons of, of, of funds flowing to the rich people, which is making, you know, fewer and fewer rich and, and more and more people finan financially struggling. So they can, they may be unemployed or they may have low pay, so they do not pay any high taxes. So it's now the middle class which is being squeezed to keep the system together because the, the rich people are hiding their money, their, their uh, wealth in, in tax havens. So going back to the question, what's your take on the sort of global appetite for change that we've seen that's kind of fueled the rise of uh, the sort of anti-establishment politics? I actually think it's, it's very healthy and, and, you know, like the success of the anti-establishment party in Italy recently is something that I think we should note. They have been painted very badly by the uh, sort of regular media. But if you look into their, to the people they have in that party, they actually, uh, actually somebody that uh, I know and, and some of my colleagues here know very well, it, it was voted in um, for a poor community in Rome. Uh, he's called uh, Lorenzo Fieramonti, um, and if if his this party gets into par, you know, gets into government, then he will be the financial minister, and he is he is a political economist, and, and so he would be promoting very much a different uh, economic path than than what has been seen in in, in Italy, uh, which of course is is known for a lot of corruption and, and, and so on. Some of these issues are, are quite specific to countries, but many of them are, are really global issues. And globally, we've seen um, the emergence or the adoption of the Sustainable Development Goals. And that's something that you've done a lot of work around, particularly in terms of thinking about the alternative frameworks that might give us a, a means of achieving the Sustainable Development Goals and also thinking quite differently about policy so that we, we have a better balance between the social, the environmental and the economic, both globally and, and locally. How do you see the Sustainable Development Goals fitting into this rise of concern that we see globally? Do you see that they genuinely provide a new pathway forward? Well, the Sustainable Development Goals very much uh, indicate that people see the need for a different development path because uh, the goals are 17. They do not only focus on the developing world, but on the developed world. They focus on uh, environmental protection and, and they focus on um, societal justice, um, um, eradicating inequality uh, and poverty and so on. So this is definitely a very different development path which is being promoted. However, most of the world's uh, governments are still focusing on economic growth and what underpins economic growth is the use of natural resources and we have now reached the time of peak production of many resources and, and oil is amongst those that means we still have half left but we can only uh, burn about 20 percent of the uh, 
fossil fuels we have left in the ground if we want to stay below two degrees. What I think is up. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Absolutely crucial in this respect is to stop only focusing on economic growth. We have to look at other issues that are important to measure. You know, what is the health of our ecosystems? Uh, what is the health of our social systems? How are these issues linked? How can we live within the boundaries that our one planet gives us? Because if we continue with the economic growth path, we will follow the scenario of business as usual, which was uh, put forward um, in a system dynamics uh, model by um, Meadows et al. in 1972 uh, under the title of Limits to Growth. And there is an Australian researcher who has recently investigated uh, which path have we been on since 1972. And sure, sure enough, we have been on the path of uh, business as usual. Uh, and this, in, this means that we are coming to a, a, a peak of natural resources that can fuel this economic growth and, be, and we will have societal decline because um, of uh, pollution and resource depletion. So what kind of economic model would you like to see in place, Vala? Well, one economic model is something that I have been working uh, on with people uh, from here, uh, Bob Kostansa and Aita Kupisevsky, and people from all over the world. Uh, we were invited to work with the Bhutanese government to uh, put together... Uh, a new new thinking uh, based on uh, gross national happiness and and that that is very much uh, uh, based on ecological economics uh, where we uh, do not only look at financial capital but we look at uh, ecological services uh, uh, as part of the natural capital and um, social capital and and putting that together we we can promote an indicator which which looks at which sort of integrates the health of our ecosystems and uh, the well-being of or the uh, happiness or uh, welfare of the people and the genuine progress uh, that we are following not just financial flow increase like GDP, but um, an indicator like which is called GPI or the genuine progress indicators, which then starts with GDP, but then adds in what's good, like a voluntary work and bringing up children and so on, and takes away what is bad, like environmental pollution and, and, and so on. If we did that, then we are much likely to stay within the limits of, of the planet that we have. And actually, we need to start focusing on this very soon because uh, we are. The, the sort of window of opportunity to change the path is, is getting narrower and narrower. And, and there are people thinking about these issues all over the place. And what I have been doing here is to sort of 
with Ida and Bob be looking at the different new economic frameworks, that is the donuts economics, which came originally from Oxfam and Kate Roveth has just written a book about that. You know, how do we stay within the ecological ceiling of the planet, but uh, but still build a social foundation for um, a prosperous life for, for everybody. Um, there is the regenerative economy that comes from uh, John Fullerton, who is um, a former banker who has seen the light that we need to do things differently. And he's very much focusing on changing financial flows to do go into something that is good both for nature and, and for communities. There is uh, the, an interesting thinking from Thailand, and I just spent uh, some time there before I came to Australia, which is called the sufficiency economy. And, and the thinking behind that was developed by their late king, uh, who uh, reigned for over 70 years and tirelessly worked on development programs around his country. And it's very much built on using together uh, wisdom and knowledge. And from that, uh, gain uh, thinking of that the middle way is good, you know, not too much and not too little. And that way, uh, get a balance in economic and, and, and environment and cultural and uh, capital. And, and then the, there are many others. So it's very interesting to, to see that there are you know, people around the world who are saying, hey, we need to change our path. But I think the only way to change um, government is to educate them properly. So there's obviously a lot of different models that you've yeah. talked about there, Vala. If you could you know, wave a magic wand or a pirate's mm. cutlass or whatever yeah. it is and implement one of those systems, which would you move to? Well, I've, I've in- invested uh, quite a lot of energy into the well-being economy, but I've just recently discovered the whis- uh, the wisdom economies, which uh, comes out of the thinking of Ken Wilbur. Uh, and in that, what they do um, is to put together um, not only... Uh, social, environmental, and financial or economic capital, but uh, actually 10 different capitals, which then includes spirituality and knowledge and health and, and so on. And, and by doing that, you can have, if, if, if people are become, become aware of this and can, can train in thinking about all of these different widths, then you can have more impact. Um, and and basically, the the what Sean um, Esbjorn Har- Hargrave, who is behind this, uh, says you can achieve with that is that not only triple bottle wine, which is profit planet purpose, um, um, no people profit planet, but you can have a quadruple pot, uh, bottom line, which is. Uh, people, profit, planet, and purpose. So people actually do have to have a purpose um, in order to to achieve these goals. And I think this is something that I and and my colleagues uh, need to at least consider. You know, is are we are we only thinking about issues that can have a, a certain impact? Are we leaving out other issues that would help? everybody achieve higher impact. So Vala, what you're talking about really is is 
um, an incredible transformation to the way the world is organised, essentially, where we, we really rethink our approach. And that's a, a long-term goal. But as you've also pointed out, the, the need for change is now. We have these gross um, increases in, in inequality, gross environmental degradation. What would you like to see happen immediately? What are the first steps that we need to take um, to, to rein things back in or, or to transform the way we approach the world? I think education is crucial. Um, that doesn't mean that we should throw all, our, all the responsibility on our children, but we do need if people who go into politics are unaware of all of these issues, then we will have bad policies. And students around the world actually have discovered that, that the curricula of, of their economics degree hasn't changed since before the economic crash and they are demanding change. So uh, it's very much being driven by students that curricula are now being, being changed and be- becoming more pluralistic. Um, unfortunately, most politicians seem to be lawyers, so we need <laughs> to educate the lawyers. We need to educate everybody about how the world economy works. And, and I must say, I'm actually a geologist, and when I studied geology, I can... I, I learned how natural resources form, and I can tell you how much there is, but I didn't learn any economics. And same for the economists. They learn uh, some, some uh, uh, fictional models, which, you know, are supposed to, you know, boom and bust regularly, and they don't understand why. <laughs> um, and then, but they didn't learn anything about natural resources. So we need to take education out of the silos and, and have a more holistic um, education. And actually, if, if I had the magic wand, you know, of a pirate or a, or a world, <laughs> world guru, I would t- make every parliament and government uh, sit down and learn about new economics. Because I think the, the most pressing thing is that if we want, don't want to steer the world to uh, four or five degrees in terms of uh, heating, then, then we need to change the economy. Finally, Vala, you talked about young people a couple of times there, and it's, it seems clear that you think that uh, the next generation will be the ones to really lead change. Are you optimistic that that change can actually happen, the kind of significant change that that we've talked about today? Yes, I would say that, you know, since I started thinking about sustainability issues, and that's now almost 20 years, I have seen a big change in the mindset of the young people. What I see in my students is that they don't necessarily want to have a big house or a big car. They're happy to bicycle or take the bus or... But they want to have access to land so that they can grow some of their food. And um, they want to have experiences instead of uh, property and so on. So there is a a change in thinking. Not not all of them, but but actually in in the the majority of the students that I uh, am teaching, I can see this change. And I think that's very, very hopeful. You know, the young people often give me hope. 
I'm conscious of the fact that um, certainly in Australia, but in many countries, politics is dominated by older people, often by by older men, and as you say, um, who've been educated in a particular way and have often had a, a career in politics. How can we start to open up the spaces for young people, um, including those who are not yet old enough to vote, to start to influence the agenda, to start to be able to, to engage in change? I think it's by giving young people a platform. You know, the universities should help in formulating some sort of a bridge so that the, young, the students can go over and, and, and talk to the politicians. You know, for example, in, in, in terms of um, an alliance of countries that uh, do want to think about uh, new economics that, that is called uh, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance and, and comes out of the work that I and others have been doing on the well-being economy. That includes countries like Scotland and Sweden and Slovenia and New Zealand and Costa Rica. They were the first countries to join up. Um, well, that was last year. Now there will be a new meeting uh, this autumn, in, um, and there uh, Finland will join, Wales will join, uh, maybe Iceland, I'm hoping at least, uh, maybe Thailand, because I did talk to uh, high-level people there, but there doesn't seem to be any indication that Australia will join this alliance. You know, how can we make that happen? Do we have to wait for a new government, or, or can this current government be reached and... and you know, somebody say, hey, you know, we need something different. I don't know. I don't know enough about politics. But uh, it seems to me that uh, if a big country like Australia would join this alliance, that would make a huge difference. Wonderful. Well, Kristin Valla Ragnostotir, it's been fascinating talking with you about some of these issues. And thanks for teasing some of this stuff out. Um, we really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to come and talk to you. Well, how about that? That was a fascinating interview. And again, many thanks to Vala for her time. So I've still got Sharon with me. Sharon, what did you make of that? What were your sort of key observations? We covered a lot of territory with Vala there. We certainly did. It was a terrific conversation. And I love the way Vala brings that combination of someone who's been engaged in practical politics as well as very deep thinking around these issues. And the agenda that she maps out is is a huge one. But when you hear her talking about what we need to do um, to address global inequality, to address environmental degradation, to, to take on some of these really big problems you don't feel overwhelmed because she does map out that pathway forward. And I think that's a really positive thing, that she she's presenting genuine alternatives. Anything else really stand out for you there, Sharon? For me, one of the really powerful messages from Vala was the importance of education. And I think in Australia, we, we often do have, find ourselves in a situation where education isn't as well valued as it should be. But Vala's broader point about the importance of a broad-based education that crosses silos, crosses disciplines, 
and is really focused on analytic skills, on critical thinking, that's so crucial to addressing some of the challenges that the world faces today. So I think that message that she has about the importance of education and the importance of educating our current political leaders um, beyond the silos that they often sit in so that they can see new pathways forward and different alternatives in in, um, the way we develop and, and implement policy. I think that's a really important message from Vala. And what about that call for sort of call to arms, call to action from young people? That was pretty important as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I thought it was fantastic to hear her talking about the importance of creating spaces for young people to both move into politics, but also to to influence the agenda. Um, And she talked, you know, really powerfully about the importance of engaging students and the role of universities in engaging students and creating that bridge between students and politics. And, you know, Martin, I'd push that even further. I'd say we need to create spaces for younger people, you know, those people who don't yet have the right to vote, um, but whose futures are dependent on what we do with the world today, but who also often have some really important and new thinking to bring to these challenges. So but I would be saying, how do we open the spaces even further to, to allow um, teenagers to be really genuinely engaging in these policy debates that they're so often very passionate about? What might that actually mean in, in practice? Well, there are some really interesting models in other parts of the world. Um, and it struck me when Vala was talking about some of the countries that have engaged proactively around um, ideas of a, a new economy, um, Slovenia, for example, Wales. These are countries that have in place children's parliaments. Now, this might be just a coincidence, but I think it also shows some of the progressive thinking that's going on in some places. Um, in children's parliaments, not just as a means of creating future citizens, but as a means of creating a way for children to genuinely engage in policy debates and to feed into the decisions that are made in adult parliaments, I think are a really great model for thinking about how we democratise democracy. Now, something like that, of course, would not just get an input from children and young people into politics and policy thinking, but it might also create some pathways for those young people to think about going into politics. And one of the things that struck me from some of the things that Vala was talking about there was if you're not creating those pathways, you're potentially drawing from a smaller pool of people, young people, who might be drawn into politics. Yeah, I think that's right. I think in many parts of the world, including Australia, one of the challenges is that Um, parliamentarians often come from a a, a very similar background. And, of course, we're seeing challenges to that with the election of of independents or minority parties. But often, you know, in the major parties, people are drawn from very similar backgrounds, often a background in law, um, often um, men from a particular background. And I think that lack of diversity is really problematic. So the more pathways that can be created for people to engage in politics... And also to come and go in politics, not to move into politics and then stay in politics as a career, but actually come and go so there's a wealth of experience being brought to political debate is really important. That would be a very significant change, I think. Well, it really was a fascinating discussion. 
Um, don't forget, we want to hear your views on what we've talked about today. You can reach us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. You can find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. And this podcast is, of course, available wherever you get your podcasts, including, as we mentioned before, Spotify. Very exciting. You can uh, find us on there and you can follow us on there. So we will be back soon with another podcast. Until then, keep an eye on our website, policyforum.net, where we cover off all of the crucial issues affecting Asia-Pacific public policy. We'll be back soon with another podcast. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And from me, Sharon Bessel, goodbye.